0: Today's scripture reading is in Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound, till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, again, good morning, church. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome on this second Sunday of Advent as we uh, enter more fully into this beautiful season of longing, Um, and we're talking about the the king that we long for. Uh, Not just the king who came, but the king who's going to return, the one that our hearts still longs for. So let's pray together, uh, and then we'll look at these ancient words together. Father, we pray that you would speak through your word this morning. God, I pray that even as you revealed these things so long ago to the psalmist, God, I pray that they would find fresh meaning in each of our lives as we look to you as our king. We thank you, Jesus, for coming. We thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, and we anticipate that you will return and that you will will establish your kingdom fully and that you will be for us as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and talked dirty and hit little kids and cussed their teachers and took the name of the Lord in vain and set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old, broken-down tool house. These are the opening words of one of my favorite Christmas stories, uh, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever by Barbara Robinson. I grew up watching the movie. Maybe you're familiar with that. It depends. I'm, I'm an 80s, 80s kid. I grew up watching that on television. Uh, but this, is, this Thanksgiving was actually the first time that we read it as a family. We just listened to the audiobook and some of our travels. It's, it's like an hour long. You've got to listen to this book. It's so, it's so, so good. The Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. It's a great way to start a story. Am I right, people? It's great. And the whole the whole town hates these kids. They are mean, they're undisciplined, they're dirty and they're poor. They're absolutely hated. But they get, they get wind of this Christmas pageant, you know, at the local church. They think there's going to be treats there, snacks. Uh, and so they decide to, to go there. And this, this pageant is like the pride of the town, right? Uh, and they're used to all the well-behaved, holy-looking church kids, right? You know the type, right? Uh, to be in this, this, uh, this pageant, right? And she, she writes, the Herdmans didn't know anything about the Christmas story. They knew that Christmas was Jesus' birthday, but everything else was news to them. The shepherds, the wise men, the star, the stable, the crowded inn. They knew nothing. Even so, they really want to be in this pageant. And so they literally bully their way onto the cast into all of the main roles. And they, they steal out of the, uh, out of the, out of the offering Uh, They drink the the communion juice. They smoke in the church bathrooms. They terrorize all of the other kids. It's really a great story, people. All the Christmas feels, right? You got to get into this. But you see, like at face value, though, here's the thing. At face value, they are the neediest people in the church. Their lives are an absolute mess. And nobody would deny that. Not even they would deny it, right? But you get to witness them as they experience our story for the first time. The magic of it, as well as the shock of it—that God Himself would come as this helpless, needy baby. Here's one of my favorite quotes from the book. Uh, this is what it says. I couldn't believe it. Among other things, the herdmen's were famous for never sitting still and never paying attention to anyone—teachers, parents, their own, or anybody else. The truant officer, the police. Yet here they were, eyes glued on my mother, and taking in every word. What's that? They would yell whenever they didn't understand something. And when mother read about there being no room at the inn, Imogene's jaw dropped open, and she sat up in her seat. "My God," she said. Not even for Jesus. And the herdmans they actually they like they want to change the pageant so they can beat the innkeeper, execute King Herod, and rebuke the wise men for their their lame gifts. Oil, what kind of cheap king hands out oil for a present? You get better presents from the firemen, they say. When they got to the, the part about swaddling clothes in the manger, Imogene asks, You mean they tied him up and put him in a feed box? Where was the child welfare? They are appalled by the indignity of our story. A story that in many ways, we're just, we're so used to it, right? But they're absolutely appalled, but they're also at the same time most brought into its beauty and glory. Just like think about that for a moment. Why is it that those who know how needy they are are most likely to recognize King Jesus? How do those things so often go hand in hand? Well, as we look at Psalm 72, we actually begin to understand why. Because you see, our king came for those who need him most. The Herdmans knew it. And even, even though this psalm was written a thousand years prior to the first Christmas, and we're talking a long time ago, right? Solomon knew it, that our king came From those who need him most. So turn to Psalm seventy-two if you haven't already. It's it says uh, of Solomon right at the very top. If you notice that there. And as we discussed last week, as we entered this year, right, we're looking at at a handful of psalms that point to this kingly nature of who Jesus is that are all pointing to him. But remember, as as we said, right, the psalms, many of them are about the actual kings of Israel first, okay. And, And this one is is clearly by and or about Solomon. But, but they're, they're more than that. Yes, yes, it's, it's Solomon, but it's, and when it happens in the psalmist, it's always also meant to give us a picture of God's ideal king, right? Of, of the ideal ruler that God would, would choose to be on his throne. And so ultimately, anytime the psalmist talks about the kingdom in that way throughout the Old Testament, right, throughout the Psalms, it means it can only find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, right? That we have that perspective. We know that Jesus is that ultimate, ultimate king, and so when we, when we pray through the Psalms as Christians, or read through them, I spent a lot of time in the Psalms, personally, I love the Psalms, but we have to remind ourselves that they are about Israel first, but that they're ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And, and so they, they belong to us, but they belong to Israel first. And so if we're going to understand them, we have to understand the historical context in which they were originally written, not just jump into our own context. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? And so the baseline assumption here in the Old Testament is that we humans need a king. We need a king. We are aimless and kind of a mess without someone to lead us. And ultimately, though, our king is meant to be Yahweh, meant to be God himself. That our God doesn't just want to save you. He wants to rule over you just makes us all a little bit uncomfortable, right? It's like, I prefer to rule over myself, thank you very much, right? We don't like the idea of God as a king oftentimes, uh, because it means that we have, we're subject to him, right, that we have to submit to the, we owe him allegiance in a way that a king has. And even, even the way our own government works kind of affects the way we think about this, because if we don't like our, our governmental leaders, we can just oust them every couple years, right? You can't, you can't do that with a king, right? You're stuck with a king. Which means the expectation that God places upon his king are really, really high, right? Is he a king for himself or is he a king for the people? Look look again at verse 1. Psalm 72, verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he, the king, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, let's let's stop there. Because that sounds pretty good, Right? I mean, that's the kind of ruler I think most of us could get behind, right? And, and there's, a lot, there's a lot here, but I want us to focus on one thing in particular at the start here, that our king knows the needy. He knows the needy. And he came for those who need him Most. There's a lot of ways that this jumps out in this, this section here. I'll go through it in just a, in a moment. But maybe, maybe that word needy doesn't really connect to you. We don't like to think of ourselves as needy, right? It's like, that. Mm. Uh, and, and many of us probably wouldn't even fit into that category as we think of that word. We're not like the Herdmans, most of us, right? Maybe try the word vulnerable instead because we're all vulnerable, aren't we? And there are times and seasons in which we feel very, very vulnerable, aren't there? And we, we need, we crave the justice, righteousness, prosperity, and peace of the Psalm, Psalm, psalmist describes. Right? We all need those things. And I, I love the imagery. Look at that verse again. May our king be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth which is a picture of our need because there's nothing we can do to make it rain. I mean, think about that. Even with all of our technological advances, you can't, we have no, no, no options there, no, nothing to do. We can't, we can't make it rain or make it stop raining. We're completely powerless, and yet we're so desperate for it. We came into this world needy. Like, let, it, let us not forget that not one person in this room would have made it alive had there not been somebody else to take care of us in our need. It's humiliating, isn't it? That's how we enter the world. And if you're lucky enough to live long, there's a pretty good chance that's how you're going to leave the world. Needy. Dependent on someone else to take care of you. It's humiliating, isn't it? We humans are vulnerable. And we feel our vulnerability when we get sick. We feel it at the breakdown of an important relationship. We feel it when it's harder to pay for our groceries, right? We feel vulnerable when we feel exposed, vulnerable in the face of change. We are needy. And we need a king who understands that, who knows how how needy we are, how much we crave justice and prosperity and provision and care and all of the peace, all of these things that the psalmist describes. We need a king who understands so maybe even just ask yourself this question. Where do you need a king right now? It's kind of a weird way of thinking about it. It's like, but man, if I, I could really use a king in this situation, right? Someone with the kind of authority, right? Someone with the kind of power, the ability. Like, where do you need a king right now? A king like this who, who sees you, who understands your vulnerable situation, whatever it is, and can actually do something about it. I mean, yes, he he requires your allegiance. Every king does, okay? But he knows you. Where do you need a king right now? Over Thanksgiving, we were at this little Airbnb in Tennessee. Uh, and they had all these signs all over the house, you know, these, like, self-help, inspirational decor signs. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, in case you need a pep talk, just read the artwork, right? Uh, and one of them in particular was just, was just funny. Uh, my son took a picture of it. It just said, sometimes all you need is a billion dollars. <laughs> it's like, yeah! I, I mean, that, that hits the nail on the head. Some, I mean, that, I would feel a whole lot vulnerable on planet Earth if I had a billion dollars. Except the reality is, like, we all know better, right? That's never all you need, right? And some of us, if we're completely honest, we would give all the money that we have to take back or, or to take over some deep area of need in our lives, of vulnerability, of brokenness, of pain, of loss. We'd give anything for that. And so maybe, maybe instead of a billion dollars, sometimes all we really need is a king. A king who sees us in our need, who knows how desperate our situation is, and who actually has the power to do something about it? Of course, what if this king knows our need, but wants to use it to his own advantage? I mean, that should be a question for all of us, right, in the face of power, and uh, kings do that sometimes. Rulers, politicians sometimes do that. They exploit others for the sake of their own desires. In fact, in, in 1888, Rudyard Kipling, uh, he wrote a short, short story uh, about this brilliant little story. It was later made into a movie. Uh, it's called The the Man Who Would Be King, right? It's great. It's a great movie. Sean Connery, Michael Caine. It's, it's a good, good old old movie. But basically, the, this, this, the plot of the story, the plot of this book that he wrote, uh, is it's set in the 1800s. And these two men, these strange friends, they just decide one day, it's like, you know, we should be kings. We can do that. Like all we got to do is we got to find a, a primitive people who've never seen guns before, and we just, we just take a bunch of guns, and we subject them to us. So we take over their land, we exploit them for our own need, and they like go, and they, they do this. They make themselves into kings. It's a, it's a pretty fascinating story, but it's not the kind of king we want, right? And so anytime we talk about this kind of, of power that someone has, we have to ask, like, what kind of power is How is he going to use his power, right? It's not the kind of king we want. And so our our king, the one the psalmist writes about, doesn't just know our neediness, doesn't just know how needy we are. He finds the needy precious. Think about that. I love the way this comes out in the psalm. He doesn't just tolerate our neediness. Like this town barely tolerates the rents, right? He doesn't just put up with it like, oh man, those humans... What was I thinking making them? A bunch of whiners always needing something. Because if I'm honest, that's how I see my neediness, right? I don't want to be a burden to anybody. The greater my need, the more I feel like I'm a burden, right? And I don't want to be in anybody's debt. I I live in denial regularly. Many of us do as if I'm a creature in need, right? I don't want to admit that to anyone, not even to myself. Because it doesn't feel precious to us. And how easy it is for us to view the needs of others in the same way, right? As a burden, as a debt. We don't don't like needy people, do we? It doesn't feel precious to us. But how does our king feel? Look Look at verse 12. Verse 12, this is really kind of the center focus of the psalm. It says, for he delivers the needy when he calls The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Meaning their lives, right? Their their very existence is precious in his sight. And so this, this king, this, this one who, who came for those who need him most. Look at, I mean, i highlighted some of the, the words there. Like, he delivers, he calls, he helps those in, who have no help. He has, he has pity, he saves, he redeems. Because we're precious to him. And so if all, if all this is true, let me ask you another question. Have you called out to your king in your need? Have you called out to him? I don't know. God's got bigger things to deal with, right, than my problems. Does he? You're precious to him. Yeah, but I don't, I don't want to be a burden, right? A burden, really? Are your children a burden when they come to you with something they truly, truly need? You're precious to him. Yeah, but I don't, I don't want to be in his debt. Listen, you already are, his debt. And yet because of Jesus, he has paid it all on your behalf. You are precious to him. Dane Orland, in his beautiful book, Gentle and Lowly, I love this book. Listen to what he writes. He's talking about the yoke of Jesus, right? This invitation we often talk about here. He says his yoke, Jesus' yoke is, a, is kind and his burden is light That is, his yoke is a non-yoke, and his burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible loneliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. I love that line. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is it is his very heart. It is what gets him out of bed in the morning. Do you believe that about our King? It doesn't just look from afar on our need. He lives with us in our need. This is why he came. And he delivers the needy when he, when we call. Have you called? He came for those who need him most. But you know, this next section is where the psalm was kind of a colossal disappointment, in my opinion. I think it's okay to say that, actually. I think the psalmist knows it. Um, let, me, let me draw it out a little bit here. Look, at, look how it builds to... Again, I love I this psalm, but it's sort of a little hopeless at the end in some ways. Verse 15. Verse 15, it says, we well, talking about the king, right? The earthly human kings. Long may he live, May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land on the tops of mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. It's a blessing for the king. And again, that's, that's appropriate. But we have to remember, right, this, this psalm is first about the earthly kings of Israel, Right? So David and Solomon and all the rest, all of which, if you know the Old Testament, frankly, if you just know human history, are a colossal disappointment, every one of them. And the, these verses here even sort of allude to that a little bit with how needy the king himself is, because it's like, you know, pray that he lives long, right? Pray that we all flourish under him. Pray that the king is a good king, right? We got we to gotta pray for the king. Like, and again, all that makes sense in the context, but these kings, these human kings were never enough. David David was a murderer and an adulterer. Like the one who wrote the majority of the Psalms, right? A murderer and adulterer. His own son tried to steal the throne from him. David knew betrayal, mockery, scorn from his father figure Saul, the early death of his best friend, the death of a child in infancy and adulthood, dysfunction in his own family, the public rejection of the wife he actually loved, the traumas of war, and sexual abuse within his own family. Those are just things I could remember off the top of my head. He was needy. And Solomon started off great and led God's nation to the brink of division and disaster out of his own arrogance, lust, and greed. HBO should totally do a miniseries on these guys. And here's the deal. Even if they had been great, verse 20, how this psalm ends, right? The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now you may notice there's a few psalms after this, right? So you're like, wait, wait a second, how's that possible? It's like, well, that's because the, the psalms were originally five separate volumes, okay? Uh, and so they existed in separate volumes for a long time, and now they're, they're brought together into our one book. So this is the end of volume two. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's why it says they're ended, and then you turn the page, and it's like, oh, there's more. That's, be, that's, that's why. They were divided up in, in that way originally. But that's, that's not the point, okay. Uh, the point is, David and Solomon and every other king, every other ruler to ever live, at some point, it's not just their prayers that are ended. They are ended. And then what? When we visited Washington, D.C. in the Northeast this past, this past summer, we visited the grave of, of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. And more recently, when we were in Tennessee, we visited the grave of the greatest hero America has ever produced, Johnny Cash. (laughs) Still dead. All of them. Everyone. And if we're completely honest, it won't be long for Trump or Biden or Pelosi or Putin or Kim or whoever you want to put on this list, no one is good enough to be the king we need. And no one lasts long enough to be the king we need. And the psalmist knows it. I think think that's why it it ends with a sense of, of longing. Because we need something more. The psalmist knows it. And so do the angels. Because the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the king we need. The fulfillment of Psalm 72 and every other earthly re- earthly ruler, this the one, the one who knows our need, the one who finds us precious, and the, and finally the one who is with the needy, both now and forever. He is with us both now and forever. This is the miracle of the Christmas story in so many ways. That Jesus actually knows what it's like to be vulnerable. He knows what it's like to be in need. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, abandoned, misused, discarded. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one, right? To feel the loss of a situation around him, a broken relationship. He knows what it's like to be in need, entering our world as a helpless baby. No less a king. And yet entirely Vulnerable. And he sympathizes with our weaknesses and he longs to, to sit with us in them and he went to a cross to overcome them. And so maybe just one last question for us to reflect on. Are you expecting your king to join you in your need? Are you expecting him to show up this Advent season or this new year and whatever it is you're experiencing, are you expecting him to show up and, and, and join you in and not necessarily fix it, it's, it's very different, right? Sometimes, sometimes fixing our problems is not the best thing for us. And there are reasons for which we often know very little in which God chooses not to do that. But he always promises to join us in it. To sit with us in those places of deep woundedness and loss and need. I, lo- I love the line in O Holy Night. It's in the verse we never sing. I even asked Patrick, we're not going to sing it today. We're seeing the other two verses, but, but listen, listen to this. Listen to this, this, this verse. It says the King of Kings lay thus in lowly manger. In all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need. To our weakness he is no stranger. Behold your king, before him lowly bend. Even just come back with me one more time to the Herdmans. So I love the way this story builds at the end. During, during the pageant, okay, so they're doing the pageant, right? It's just kind of chaos, and that's sort of the, the humor of it. But during the pageant, one of the polite, like holy looking children uh, whispers, she says, I don't think it's very nice to burp the baby Jesus as if he had colic. Do you, do you suppose he could have had colic? She asks. And I said, I don't know why not. And I didn't. He could have had colic or been fussy or hungry like any other baby. After all, that was the whole point of Jesus that he didn't come down on a cloud like something out of amazing comics, but that he was born and lived a real person. And this is, this is why Imogene Herdman, as she's playing Mary, right, she stands there towards the end and she just cries, right, realizing the beauty of what this God has done. It's why, it's why her brothers, right, who are playing the wise men, they trade out that silly oil and bring the baby their government ham, which I love the irony of that. It's not very kosher. But it's all they had, right? Church, your need is all you need to bring him. And it's why Gladys Herdman, the angel of the Lord, she had the only speaking part. She made the most of it. Hey! Unto you a child is born, she hollered, as if it was for sure the best news in the world. Church, we have a king who knows us, who knows how needy we are, how vulnerable we are, how desperate we are, and who finds us precious even in the places of desperation. Desperation. And he promises to be with you in those spaces both now and forever. And all you need to bring him is your need. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, what an incredible story that you have come. May we never lose sight of the scandal of it, That our God would put on flesh. That he would live in poverty and need. And that you would suffer and die in our place. May we never forget the scandal of it. And at the same time, God, in recognizing the scandal, may you meet us in those places with great joy and delight. Once again, celebrating what you have done on our behalf. The lengths in which you have gone to show us your love to redeem us and to rule over us. And so, King Jesus, we thank you, we love you, and we submit to you everything we have, all that we are, whatever you want. You are a king, and we give it to you freely and with great joy. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, now as a tangible reminder of this story, we get to come to the Lord's table. A place where we once again to get to remind ourselves of our need, right, of our desperation before our God, but also where we get to receive this uh, symbol of his body and blood, right uh, the satisfaction of our need, right that he uh, is here in this space with us. From the night that Jesus was betrayed, right, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you poured out for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Do this in remembrance of me. If you're new here, let me just kind of quickly explain how we do this. We have uh, tables throughout the room. You can find your way to any. There's a couple up here and the rest are sort of scattered in the back. Make your way to to one of them. We'll gather you in groups of five, six, or seven around that table because it's something we do as a family together. Um, And so then you'll take the bread, dip it in the cup, uh, and eat together at the instruction of your server. The Lord Jesus invites all who are his to please come.